0: Hey everyone, my name is Ju Lin. Um, It's so great to be here to worship with you guys. I've probably, um, some of you may remember me from the coffee talk uh, uh, of the chaplaincy at Kwantlen. I've now transitioned out of KPU and into uh, serving at TAP Marple and I'm the associate pastor at TAP Marple. And it's been a great month uh, being on the pastoral team. We started our summer series called Discipleship stories. And I think it's a really fun series where we get to meet a disciple from the New Testament and a disciple from TAP. And personally, I'm really enjoying listening to all the different stories from all our different pastors. Last week, if you were here, we've heard about uh, Philip from Al and previously Lazarus from Jesse. Today, we're going to meet another disciple. Her name is Elizabeth. She's uh, better known as the mother of John the Baptist. And not much is written about her. Probably more or less 20 verses in total. And we're going to take a look at those passages. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1. You know, uh, the gospel of Luke opens with two miraculous conceptions and two birth narratives. So one, of course, is Jesus. And the other is uh, uh, John the Baptist, the Messiah's forerunner. Luke 1, 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been around in church, this uh, might strike to you as a familiar story, especially during Christmas. We have Luke beginning his Christmas story here. The announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, which is the Messiah's forerunner. So If you look in your Bible, the first four verses in Luke is the opening preface, but immediately we have verse 5 in the time of Herod king of Judea, and what Luke does is he brings us into the story in history, and this was the time during the reign of Herod the Great, which places us about 34 BC to 7 BC, and he starts, there was a priest named Zechariah. But let's pause a little You know, this was a time before we had the New Testament. um, And the Old Testament scriptures end in Malachi for us English readers. But it has been 400 years of silence. So Israel's prophet had um, uh, fallen asleep or they have passed. And the spirit's activity seemed to have ceased in Israel. So 400 years of silence. And Luke writes with his opening scene. The first person on scene is Zechariah. In Hebrew, Zechariah, Yah for Yahweh, Zechar remembers. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers his covenant. Yahweh remembers his people. Yahweh remembers his people is in exile. But like I said, my story today is on Elizabeth. Um, and she is introduced as the wife of Zechariah. Um, and... Here in this short passage we just read, we have an introduction. Who is she? So first we see she is a descendant of Aaron. This is a common summary for an excellent woman from an outstanding background with good familial ties. And we kind of have a power couple here. We have Zechariah himself a priest and then married to a, a priest's daughter. So this was double distinction. And in the fullest sense, John the Baptist was birthed from priestly line. Not only she was a descendant of Aaron Nix, it says that she was righteous. And this was explained by she carefully observed all the Lord's commands and decrees. So we can gather that Elizabeth was not just a nominal Jew, nominal Israelite, she was a devout Israelite. But there is more. In verse seven, it says, "But they were childless. Verse 7 caught my attention um, because verse 6, we just read, she was blameless and righteous, and it immediately follows when she was childless. In those days, being barren was a big ordeal in the ancient world, especially for a woman. In first century uh, Jewish society, a woman had no uh, political or economical or social standing and not being able to conceive really had um, uh, economical implications to the point where Elizabeth calls it a disgrace in verse 25, and we'll see that later. So let's just play out this scenario: a Jewish woman probably got married in her early teens, 13, 14, not probably 15. And in our day and age, uh, what what? How old is too old? We're probably thinking 50 or 60, or if not, 40. So we're looking at 30, maybe 40 years of Elizabeth, month after month, not being able to conceive a baby. We don't know what she really wrestled with, but all we know is that the Bible says she observed all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. And that, my friend, um, is what... It's called to be a disciple. This verse also caught my attention because sometimes when I read it, um, I like to read as they were, they were childless because blank. You know, you fill in with there was something wrong with them or um, there was something wrong with her. And in the ancient world, being childless or barren is easily assumed as a punishment for sin. But not so Here. Just in two short verses, we see that devout Elizabeth was righteous and blameless, and blameless Elizabeth was barren. In this first text, we find obedient followers of God living in a painful reality of being childless. These righteous people are constantly living in that deep disappointment and disgrace, never having that child they so longed for. Later in Luke's um, Christmas story, we see God using Anna, the prophetess, and she's described described as husbandless. What a tapestry of uh, um, unlikely disciples, all part of God's story. We have childless Elizabeth, husbandless Anna, virgin teenager Mary, shepherds in a night watch, pagan magi from the east, just a tapestry of unlikely um, disciples. And misfits, even, woven together to be part of God's big story. You know, God always includes and invites unlikely disciples. Remember just last week, Al talked about the Ethiopian eunuch? There is hope and acceptance for a sexually mutilated foreigner. He's as far as what you would imagine what a devout Jew looked like. But... The Ethiopian eunuch belonged, so you belong. Who is she? What is her story, Elizabeth? Blameless Elizabeth was barren, or barren Elizabeth remained blameless. Barren Elizabeth stayed the course. My first takeaway is disciples, too, experience pain. Blameless and righteous disciples, too, suffer. Good, upright, God-loving disciples, too, experience disappointments in life. But disciples are those who stay the course. As Eugene Peterson would put it, a long obedience in the same direction. Even when life does not play out the way it is supposed to... The story continues. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, Your prayer has been heard. Let, let's put a pause button. Your prayer has been heard. Notice that Zachariah and Elizabeth are praying people despite of this ongoing barrenness a reality of being childless they are praying people your wife elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him john he will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the lord he is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the holy spirit even before he is born He will bring back many of the people to Israel, sorry, many people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here we have great news of great joy. Elizabeth will be pregnant after all. And this child that Elizabeth is about to have has a special place in God's redemptive plan. As we read, he is chosen to go on in the spirit of power of Elijah, an allusion to Malachi 4. Like Elijah, John was endowed with the spirit. He is chosen to be the Messiah's forerunner to prepare the way for the coming Messiah King. See, Yahweh remembers his prophecies. And in this beautifully orchestrated advent or arrival of our king, Yahweh is bringing about every of his prophecies to pass. Yahweh remembers, Baron Elizabeth remained in God. Baron Elizabeth stayed the course. She had a long obedience in the same direction. And as her story progresses, we see God intervene. God is involved in Elizabeth's story, in your story, and in my story, every part of it and every step of it. God is interested, involved, and he is moving in our lives. Our story continues. Verse 24. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among people. In one verse, we get a glimpse into Elizabeth's thoughts. She says, the Lord has done this for me. Elizabeth praises the blesser. She acknowledges that God was at work in her. And she joins the chorus of women who brought God's promises to birth long after hope and expectation of childbearing had vanished. Elizabeth is with Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Rebecca, who eventually conceived Jacob and Esau. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Elizabeth joins the chorus of women who praises the blessed sir for their promised offspring. We're going to skip over, if you're in your Bibles, verses 26 to 38. The angel announces the birth of Jesus to Mary. So after this um, um, encounter of Mary and Gabriel, both Elizabeth and Mary's path converge. Two birth announcements, two miraculous conceptions meeting face to face. If you have, I saw in your bulletins, that, um, we put on an artwork of Elizabeth meeting Mary. And this is where we we kind of find our passage. We have a pregnant Elizabeth who's aged, who's much, way, much older than the teenager Mary in your bulletin. Verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Her greeting caused um, uh, the the child in Elizabeth's womb to leap. So John the Baptist was to be Jesus' precursor and prepare his way. So even here, we see that John announced the Messiah's presence by leaping in his mother's womb. So even in the womb, John starts to point to Jesus. And we see that pregnant Elizabeth, now she responded, why am I so favored? Her, re- her response reveals how she sees herself. Why am I so favored? She sees herself as a humble beneficiary of God's goodness. Elizabeth does not um, think that God owes her such a central role, yet she is so amazed that God would be involved in her life. We can hear the humility in her voice. She's honored being in the presence of the mother of my Lord. She counts it joy and not competition in meeting Mary. She rejoices with Mary. And this is where our text ends. In verse 45, Elizabeth declares, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. I love this blessing. It's a rare instance with an actual feminine pronoun. You know, as a woman, when we dig into the ancient text, um, we quickly adapt to its masculine pronouns. Um, understanding gender inclusivity, such as um, fishes of men. We know it's fishes of uh, people. Or when Paul writes a letter and he says, brothers, we urge you, brothers. We know that Paul is not just writing to the men in the church. He's writing to everyone in the church. Or verses like he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. We know that it includes us. And as a woman reading Uh, uh, the Hebrew, the Greek, we understand and are more forgiving that translations are not that easy. But here we have a verse to a woman by a woman. Blessed is she who believed God. One of the many reasons why I love this passage on Elizabeth. So here we have Elizabeth's story. Maybe not the full story, but a snippet of her discipleship story. Her introduction is straight to the point. Elizabeth was a a descendant of Aaron. She was righteous, but she was childless. My story is, in a nutshell, very similar. I grew up in a good Christian home, not a priest, not from an ironic uh, priestly line, and I was simply put a good Christian, or a Christian, just trying to live out God's ways in my world, and maybe that's... Some of you may find yourself in that similar story. We may not have a radical conversion like Paul from a persecutor to a follower, or we may not have a pre-conversion past life with gangs or drug lords, and we may just find ourselves like Elizabeth just staying the course. So was I, but I was not childless. I experienced another kind of pain. I was 27 years old when I was widowed. I know I'm meeting some of you or most of you for my first or second time, but if you allowed me, I would like to share a little of my journey through grief. I was widowed because Brandon died. Brandon was my Bible college sweetheart. We graduated Bible college together And got married a few weeks after graduation. Sorry, this is the third time I'm doing this, and still. It was such a sweet time, and frankly, a real high point in my life. I had a life partner who had the same vision for life, full time ministry, and life could not get any better. But in June of 2012, just one year after being married, Brandon passed. Very suddenly, And unexpectedly, I was widowed and about to embark on an uncharted journey called grief. Not only that, I had to pick up tombstone styles and a casket and plan the wake and memorial service. I didn't understand why Brandon was taken away so quickly. You know, I did everything right, or we did everything right. We faithfully obeyed and served God, and I mean, we were in ministry serving the church. I demanded God for an answer. Why? Why him? I wanted to fill in the blank. Brandon died because I did something wrong. I sinned. He sinned. Our family sinned, or... A sin I don't even know of. But I found solace in that verse we just read. Elizabeth was childless because she was not able to conceive. That one verse in the story of Christmas kind of gave me words to describe my situation. I was widowed because Brandon died. In searching for an answer, I found God. I don't know if knowing all the answers would have made the pain go away. The word disciple is such a Christianese term, and sometimes we don't know what it means. If you were here two weeks ago, Jesse's message really hit home. Even death can be reworked, transformed for God's glory. Our God is not afraid to go there death how powerful is that everything that happens to god's people in god's kingdom happens under his watchful eyes disciples are kingdom people living under the dominion and reign of our good and powerful king go ahead go you should listen to jesse's story online today i want to encourage you that a disciple is simply someone who stays the course A disciple has a long obedience in the same direction. I had a hard time thinking about how I would share my story, and I decided to read a few excerpts from my journal, three in specific. October 2012, It hurts when I think of him. It hurts when I don't think of him. I feel pain even when I'm laughing. I remember his smile. I remember his voice. I remember his smell. And now it's not here. He's not here. Anything can trigger that pain that is there. It isn't gradual from small to big. No, more like a stab to your heart without ever removing the object or recovering from the stab. You learn to live with a knife through your heart. December 2012. The pain is so paralyzing, I'm feeling numb. Maybe numbness is better than pain. Maybe. Maybe not. Numbness is a slippery slope to hopelessness, nothingness. Being numb makes you numb to every other thing joy, surprise, satisfaction. Life feels like nothingness. Why live? Then there are days when you move on, or so it seems, a new amputated life, and in that sense, move on. Then there are times when I catch myself smiling, maybe from a silly joke, or from the sunrise, or from a song on the radio. In that moment, I guess there are small miracles after all. We move on, however moving on looks like not because we've forgotten our loved ones, but because we remember them even clearer, January 2013. Many have told me that time would heal. In some ways, it is true. In many ways, it is untrue. Time only made me realize that my reality is becoming more permanent. I don't think a concept or an idea like time can truly heal. Only a person, a person who feels and loves and is able, a person who cries, who tears. Not every pain will be healed, if by healed you mean removed, but my pain is shared with Christ. A concept cannot feel, it tells, it predicts, it explains, but it neither feels nor loves nor hurts. But a person, divine and able and loving, that person can heal. In him, my pain is healed. And by healed, I don't mean taken away or reduced, but shared. In no way I'm saying that Christ is not able to remove my pain. If God did remove my pain, as in I don't feel any sort of pain from losing my husband, I would then be in a lot of pain because of the non-existence of pain. You can't love something, lose it, and not feel pain. You certainly cannot love someone, love him, sorry, lose him, and not feel pain. If pain were non-existent, then I had not loved to begin with. If there was a splinter in your skin, and in that sense, healing would mean remove removing the splinter to remove the pain. But grief is altogether something else. The healing doesn't come by removing the pain. It is in the pain when grief is shared with Christ, who feels and loves and is able. That's when healing goes on. And in that sense, move on. It is no wonder that the other name for our God is healer. Only he can heal my pain. It is in this man of sorrow I give every piece of my broken and shattered heart. Staying the course. A long obedience in the same direction. Perseverance an active trusting, an active waiting. You know, I had my doubts. I was angry at God. I yelled. I threatened. I wanted justice. I wanted to get back at God. But how many of you know that God is greater? God's grace is sufficient for, enough for all my anger Enough to carry me through paralyzing pain. Enough to carry me to the next day and the next day and the next. And now, seven years later, I was widowed. The pain was real. But so is hope. So is peace that transcends all understanding. What is a disciple? One who stayed on, one who is faithful, through childlessness, through grief, through death, through the lowest disappointments and the highest victories and success, and through the ordinary, a long obedience in the same direction. An Australian philosopher, Dory from Finding Nemo of Disney, once said, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. My exhortation for you is just to keep believing. Sometimes we expect Christianity to be this big wow factor. And, you know, in some season it is. Miracles, doors opening, healing opportunities you thought weren't possible. But most times, disciples are those who remain faithful. Just keep swimming. I would like to end my sermon today with Elizabeth's words. Blessed is she who believed God. You guys um, know the band Journey. Um, There's yeah, some see some smiles and some nods. There is a lyric in there, and um, uh, it says, "Don't stop believing." Yeah, some head nods. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop believing. What is a disciple? It's as simple as those who just keep zooming. Don't stop believing. A long obedience in the same direction. Blessed is she who believed God. Would you pray with me? Blessed be our God. The Lord who remembers. The Lord who sees. The Lord who knows. Blessed be Jesus Christ, true God, And true men, man of sorrows, lamb of God, praise and honor unto thee. Amen. (coughs)